Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. In a few days' time, we'll be releasing part two of our Fuel 10K series, where we talk to founder Barney Maleverer about the sale of Fuel 10K to Premier Foods. But first, in this episode, recorded in 2020, learn how Barney and his team had already built the Fuel 10K business to £12 million in revenue sales at the time of recording. P.S. This short prologue was typed in text and is then spoken back by my AI voice. Cool, don't you think? Creating transformational growth depends on getting a lot of things right. And in the food industry, there are a hell of a lot of things that can trip you up. But the thing is, they're mostly things that don't need to trip you up if you know about them in advance. Or if someone explains to you how something works or points something out to you that has often gone wrong for them in the past. Something I've done throughout my career is to have collected a bunch of seasoned food entrepreneurs who I've built lovely relationships with and whom I can call out of the blue to ask them who the best distributor in Germany is for chilled, what margin I should expect to give Spar in Switzerland or whether sampling in Carrefour is worth the investment. One such person is Barney Maleverer. In a few days' time, we'll be releasing part two, where we talk to Barney about the sale of Fuel 10K to Premier Foods. But first, learn how Barney and his team built the business in this episode recorded in 2020. Barney cut his teeth in the food and drink industry during the front five years of early stage innocent drinks. In his last role as European manager, he headed up a new international strategy at Innocent to scope out new opportunities in Europe. In 2006, Barney left Innocent to seek a more entrepreneurial route of his own and set up Fresh Marketing with his school and uni mate, Alex Matheson. Fresh Marketing is a distributor and consultancy specialising in international business development for UK food businesses. It was founded on spotting new innovations in food and drink that often emerge in the US and then head out east. Product types include smoothies, premium crisps, cereal bars, flavoured popcorn and breakfast granola. Fresh Marketing has been involved in the overseas development and distribution of some of the UK's fastest growing consumer food and drinks brands, including Innocent Drinks, Eat Natural, Burt's Chips and more recently Candy Kittens, Deliciously Ella and a number of other high potential startup brands. Fresh Marketing currently supplies over 40 international markets. In 2013, Barney and Alex launched their own protein-boosted breakfast band called Fuel 10K. Fuel 10K is now stocked across all the major UK retailers and many convenience and food service customers. Self-funded from the start and with a brilliant team of 19, Fuel 10K turns over 12 million at retail sales value and is growing more than 20% per annum. Barney, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Are you calling in from Dorset? I am. I'm sitting in my shed in deepest, darkest Dorset, looking out over a very grey day. Fab. Barney, when you sent me a little bit about yourself during our prep calls, I was really surprised to see that you have done a huge amount of long distance foot races. Is that true? Well, yes, I'm afraid it is. It's a bit sort of loose in the head, but I um, did the Marathon des Sables in the Moroccan desert which is a sixth uh, marathon event over seven days. And the same same sort of uh, set up uh, during the Jungle Marathon, which is down the, the Amazon in Brazil. And then finally did the Himalayan Everest Challenge Marathon, which is uh, at dizzying heights uh, along the Nepalese border. Wow. When did you do all this? It's been some time since I did my last one, but I, I need to do the last in the series. So I've done a, a desert, I've done a jungle, I've done a mountain, and the next one is an ice one. I'm just trying to find the excuse to to zip off to somewhere very cold to to complete the the four seasons. Last week, I interviewed Giles Brook from Vita Coco, and 
Next week, I'm interviewing Pippa Murray from Pippa Nut, and both of them are extreme distance runners as well. So maybe this has got something to do with uh, the success you've had in the food industry. Have you been running for long? I think, well, actually, it must be collective madness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Must be something in the water if you want to do that sort of thing, but also maybe launch your own brand too. So Barney, for our listeners who don't know you, can you give us a quick whistle-stop tour of your time at Innocent, then tell us loads about fresh marketing and Fuel 10K? Yeah, well, it all started in uh, the year 2000, pretty much, when I joined as a newbie in the food industry to a very young upstart Innocent Drinks. And I didn't really know much about the food industry. And at that time, they were only six months in. I was number seven into the business. And the first job they gave me was to see whether or not I could go and muster new sales to anyone who might have a different accent to the London accent or who might wear kilts. So off I went in my cow van with a bunch of exploding smoothies in the back and toured the UK down to Cornwall where they wear kilts and across to the the Emerald Isle of Ireland and spent my first year uh, trying to build new sales uh, outside of London. Wow. Uh, I was there for five years and uh, it was the most magical, incredible sort of experience uh, anyone could really want in the food industry. We were very, very disruptive, very different to what the industry had seen before. We were, after all, only selling juice, but just did it with a a sort of magical panache. Over the five years I was there, I came back and ended up running the the UK sales team as we went into supermarkets. Okay. And then my last role was to see whether we could get smoothies into some of the European markets. And you left then to set up on your own? I had always wanted to own my own business, do my own thing and live in Dorset. And those three things didn't really kind of coincide with with having a a full-time job in London. And I left in 2006 to set up a company called Fresh Marketing, left on very good terms with Innocent. Innocent at the time were looking at a launch in the US through Starbucks. And I thought that was a good opportunity for me to say, do you know what, I'd like to take on the French market, maybe own the French market for Innocent, as it were, but as as a sort of agent stroke distributor. That's what I did for the first year when we launched Fresh Marketing. We opened an office in Paris. Uh, We hired a team. We set up a company and things got on pretty well. We got into Monoprix, into Carrefour, into into uh, a lot of the sort of Parisian food service stores. But the plan slightly changed when the Starbucks buyer in the US changed and, and that didn't really happen. And the core strategy for Innocent Exports um, came back to Europe. So the decision was made that uh, in due course, uh, we would hand back the reins of Innocent in France and Innocent carried on under their own steam. At that same time, I realized that the work that we were doing was very valuable for other brands and started tapping up other people who we'd been shoulder rubbing at trade shows and, and what have you. And our first kind of major brand was a a, a cereal bar brand called Eat Natural, uh, which is still sort of omnipresent in the UK, but now all over Europe as well and and internationally. And we, for about 10 years or so, looked after the export development of of Eat Natural. Okay. And France being our our major market, but um, we, we opened up numerous other markets after that. As we were doing that, we then started adding more and more brands. Some worked, some didn't work. Some were short-term projects. Some uh, have lasted the time. One of those brands was Burt's Chips, which we did a a huge amount of uh, business with. Um, And at one stage, we had 85% market coverage in the Dutch market and were by far the biggest hand-cooked chip brand in that market at a time when hand-cooked chips were becoming quite trendy and cool. 
But like any food trend, uh, these things sort of catch up with themselves. Lots of other brands join the party um, and one or two may emerge as victorious. We handed the reins back to Burt's Chips about five years ago or so. Uh, they had an export team and, and they continue under their own steam now. And in that time, we have developed um, uh, various other brands. And today we're working with a, a few really strong ones, uh, Candy Kittens being one, Deliciously Ella being another, of course, our own brand now, which I'll come back to shortly, and a number of other sort of snacking, ambient, uh, long life type products that, that match um, the food trends that we're seeing coming out of the States uh, and traversing across the globe. So that's quite a portfolio over the years and even today. And I'm sure that you have learned a humongous amount about export and business development in European markets and the Far East, I understand as well as a result. And we'll come to that a little later on in the podcast, because I know a lot of our listeners will be either in that stage already or getting to that stage. But tell us about Fuel 10K. So Fuel 10K came out as a very opportunistic project. We, we often go over to the Expo West show, which is in California, to see what trends we think are going to start coming over to the UK. And one of those trends, and this must be about six or seven years ago, was the fact that protein was sort of normalizing and becoming a, a sort of nutritional claim almost that wasn't just reserved for the gym junkies that, that we all sort of assumed protein was for way back when. And uh, through a sort of chance encounter with the Tesco breakfast buyer, we got talking about what was working, what wasn't working in, uh, in a declining category uh, that breakfast was and has been for some time. And he said that he was looking for a granola that was sort of turbocharged, that was going to be distinctive, different, uh, incremental. And uh, with our kind of protein insight, we agreed that we would try and come up with a product that he might like to have a look at. So that's kind of where we started. And, and it all moved incredibly quickly. We ended up having 12 weeks from thumbs up on the product to actually being on shelf without a brand and without packaging and without any money really we started with the product first and the brand was definitely second right and the immense hurry uh, that we were we were in we made an awful lot of mistakes we were given 450 stores uh, which was quite a good start for tesco um, but we had to convince manufacturers that we were real um, so of course we slightly inflated the truth on that one we we had to tell the buyer that we were talking to Jamie Oliver to see whether he would maybe put his face on the front of our packaging. When Jamie Oliver declined that, uh, we said that we were talking to Bear Grylls as well. Uh, <laughs> and his agent didn't really take a fancy to it either. Uh, we did the full round. Um, I'd always, for some reason, had the word fuel in my mind, but of course you couldn't trademark that. And we ended up literally cobbling something together in PowerPoint and it was a silhouette of a person on a on a mountain of granola, and I, I came up with this this strap line, which I'm, I'm was certain was was going to nail it, uh, called "One Life Live It Fuel." Um, thinking that of course I'd made up the strap line on my own. It was soon pointed out that that's Land Rover's strap line, um, <laughs> and, and on my windscreen it says "One Life Live It," and I'd never really sort of. <laughs> registered that okay so you can see the catalog of errors coming out already um but we got on shelf with this packaging the um buyer who we'd asked whether we can use his name in a press release immediately phoned us saying please don't put my name on that and um 
literally we were panicked from the outset we were sat on all this stuff and what have you we managed however to sort of claw it back meeting a, a guy who uh, had been the designer of a energy drink brand called relentless who again chance encounter said that I, I think i've got a brand that could work here i buy into this this concept called your 10,000 hours if you put practice into something you can become perfect at it um, and I think that could work really well in granola. So how about fuel your 10,000 hours, which sounded a bit of a mouthful, but we went with that because we didn't have much choice. He helped us kind of pull together the design and there was a dirty great sort of eye on the front of pack, which was indeed very distinctive. Uh, black packaging uh, in a sea of blues and yellows that the breakfast category was used to. And we managed to convince the, the Tesco buyer to, to hold on to the listing. We dropped down to 200 stores uh, in the next range review. So this was launched in October and then range review in March. So from 450 to 200. And then we just held the line uh, to see what would happen. Come the following October, um, we then went back up to 600 stores. Wow. Um, something about it worked. Something happened. And I think that that is where the sort of magic of, of getting brand right or at least relevant for a period of time really starts kicking in. And I think what had happened was that, that we had really started to appeal to a very different audience to what was going on in breakfast at the time. A lot of uh, breakfast skippers, uh, young people weren't going for the, the typical brands that, that are in that category. And we were able to bring them something that was just a little bit more uh, engaging, I suppose, uh, with a very good product. And the protein play was we were f sort of first into the category with uh, a protein claim. So that's that's the very sort of potted history of, of fuel. And and it's continued for the last sort of six years or so. It's a, a, been a proper roller coaster. We've, we've launched things. Some things have worked. Some things haven't. We've had many first to markets. And uh, we, we now feel like we're on a pretty good trajectory. And you said you had some good news yesterday? Literally, actually, this morning, I had an email in confirming that we've now secured a, a significant listing with our breakfast drinks, uh, which we launched about four or five years ago. We were first to put liquid on the shelves in the cereal aisle in the UK. But we've, we've got a significant listing in Australia, which um, should be hitting the the shelves in March. Australia is the home of breakfast drinks. Um, they sell 200 million units a year over there. They're very familiar with, with the product. Um, many brands have failed over there, including private label against um, a 98% market share dominant brand. Wow. Um, so we're next in line and we are going to be sending over a first order of seven containers of breakfast drinks. Um, it feels like little sort of marching soldiers. That is massive. And listen, what strikes me when you're talking is you are very humble and kind of making a lot of jokes about all of the mistakes you have made and how close to the wind you've sailed with fuel. And I know that's kind of how you tend to do things. But people in the food industry almost seem to be, and I suppose in lots of industries, seem to be afraid to talk about their mistakes or talk about where they've screwed up or where they've made learnings or how close to the wind they've sailed. People like to put across an image of everything was planned and everything happened exactly so. What kind of things have you learned along your journey since Innocent Days and through Fresh and now with Fuel that you wish you'd known earlier or that you've been able to put into practice with Fuel 10K? I, I love that. That's sort of strategizing after the event. Yeah, we, we meant to fail on that one because that then led to 
to a win over here. Um, <laughs> I think if I look back at in my innocent days, I would say that the first things first is just get started. And sales need to come first because without sales, you don't have any money to do any of the other stuff. And I think a lot of brands spend a lot of time on on creating wonderful brands themselves without actually just getting into the into the market and then adjusting as you go along in a sort of constant cycle of self-improvement. And we talk about that in our business all the time. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. Fail fast, but make sure you do fail fast because you, you need to make sure you, you get onto the stuff that's working. I believe that you can create your own luck. And what I mean by luck is not, not winning um, at the casino table, uh, but just having your eyes wide open and being prepared to make significant movements if needed, but lots of small ones too, to twist and turn and shape what you're doing and what your brand stands for. And and in a world where the consumer is changing at such a rapid pace, you've got to be prepared to to keep moving. And and brands that don't will struggle. So I would I would say that that's probably the fundamental thing, and that's what we did at Innocent as well. We launched with a very strange concept. If you close your eyes and first think about it, um, we were selling fruit juice. Tropicana were already selling fruit juice but what innocent did was create and i don't know if you've seen the simon sinek help with the why but it's so so true it's so relevant um the why is why buy innocent over tropicana say or apple over nokia is because they had an engaging personality of a, a lifestyle brand that just kind of triggered the emotions of consumers and also delivered on a very good product with the right price with a very robust operational sort of team uh, at a time so timing is crucial too because otherwise you try and launch a fruit juice now um you probably heard about the recent demise of, of one of them if you get your timing wrong then that's gonna set you back too so th there's a catalog of what we call the alignment of stars uh, and that's what i look for in brands when we take them on into export you can have a very strong brand but if the product doesn't stack up that's a problem you can have a very strong product but if the price is wrong or your operational robustness isn't right then you're going to struggle if the team behind all of that doesn't really get it then we're going to struggle and so there are lots of little moving parts that i think if i was to write a business plan now i might <laughs> might sort of know a little bit more but again you know things change and you see other brands doing amazing things in new categories the whole online thing is just phenomenal um, and that's about the consumer changing. So at the end of the day, it's the consumer that decides your your fate. And the, the gatekeepers and retailers, all they care about is making more money. They're owned by the city and the city are owned by investors and investors want to make more money. So if you can do that for retailers, then that's half, half your challenge sorted. So talk to us about international business development for a food brand. What are the different options that a scaling food brand can take with international business development? And what are the watch outs? Yeah, I, so first thing I ask any brand is what their ambition is for the brand. If they have launched a brand that they are going to keep forever and ever and pass down to the to the next generation, then uh, that's very different to a brand who wants to grow a valuable, and when I mean valuable, I mean kind of creating value that they can sell one day. If you're creating a brand that you can sell one day, that you want to sell to, I don't know, the trade or a private equity house or what have you, you almost need to start at what that looks like and work backwards. Um, so what is the size? What makes a brand valuable, et cetera? 
And I would always argue, and incidentally, most brands that launch tend to want the latter. They want to get in, grow it fast, and then sell it on if they can. I would argue that you want to get your home market absolutely tickety-boo. Uh, you want that that humming away and creating all the stories that, that prove that you've got something really, really cohesive. The next step is to uh, figure out which international markets would work best for you strategically to enter. Now, that could be European, it could be America. A lot of UK brands want to take on a piece of America just because of the size of it. Rest assured, it is the great graveyard of British food and drink brands. Uh, so step carefully. Um, but to create true value in your brand, you don't necessarily have to do really well in that market, that international market. You just need to prove that your concept works. Because unless you raise lots and lots of money or you are putting an awful lot of time building it organically, um, no one's going to be able to expand your brand quick enough uh, compared to, to the A, A brands that are out there, the big multinational international brands. So get it right in the UK, pick one or two export markets to prove that your brand can work. And the rest of it is just noise. It's distractive, it's opportunistic, it's maybe in part tactical. You might think that, that you can get a few extra quid by selling a few pallets here and there, but it's a massive distraction for the core uh, of the sales team, particularly the operations team, the brand team. So talk to us, talk to us though, so you've chosen your two markets, right? Do I yeah. go and do that myself or do I bring on a distributor or do I find an agent in the market or how do I do it? What should I do? Yeah. So the point of explaining that is that say you pick those two markets, they're strategic markets. Now, if you use the word strategic, it means that you have to apply focus, company focus. And my first rule would be to say that you, you need to be prepared to invest in those markets. Now, there are different ways you can do it. Of course, the, the expensive route is to create your own subsidiary, uh, hire a team and do what you did in the UK overseas, leveraging whatever brand assets you can and, and learnings from your home market. That has all sorts of um, problems, um, but also uh, if you can make it work, it's probably the most sustainable and value creating. The next version would perhaps be a, a, an agent model where you appoint a local agent who already has great relationships with retailers and sort of understands the lie of the land. So you're shortcutting all that learning that you might have to do if you were your own subsidiary. And next on that is appointing a master importer who you can work almost in partnership with, who perhaps has a handful of brands that are already distributed in multiple locations and you can just piggyback that distribution model all of them have their pros and cons of course the last one which i think is quite interesting um for maybe the next market the third international market would be a license model if you've got a strong enough brand a disruptive brand that, that can sell itself off shelf as well as it can on shelf, securing a license agreement with someone who really knows what they're doing in a market can be very powerful. You're building the brand, but you're not taking the risk. Um, of course, you're also not taking the, the revenue or the margin either. But at the end of the day, these international companies who buy smaller brands are looking to buy brands. If they could do it themselves, they would. And so they're buying a brand. They're not buying a product. They're not buying distribution. They're buying something that they can't do themselves. And so it is ultimately all about having a very strong brand internationally. And then, of course, I'd add 
add this next bit um, that for the non-strategic markets, the markets that are creating all that noise and distraction, that's where our fresh marketing model kicks in. Um, there are various different other companies out there who do different things, but I think we've got a very unique model in that we supply about 40 different markets around the world, mostly um, Western Europe, Middle East and, and Far East, so pockets of the Far East. And we basically assume that you will some stage want to bring export back in-house a bit later on down the line. But whilst you're focusing on your own home market and also your strategic markets, we will build and light fires in these other markets and kind of do it almost in parallel to what you're doing, but without all the requirement of sales and logistics and operations and what have you. Um, we work on a, a, a slender margin. We explain that that margin will come back to you in due course, so we're not over-inflating the price. Um, you can put our margin into your, your cost, cost line rather than your gross margin, and you will be alongside some of the other great British fast-growth brands. One brand helps another brand, as it were. Well, one of the things that I think is really important when you're working with a distributor in a new market is to make sure that you are almost on top of it, on top of the distributor. And I suppose I've taken a risk here saying that to you, given that that's one of your businesses. But I find that lots of food companies will say, oh, I've got this great distributor. You know, he's come really highly recommended to me. And then a year later, they'll say, well, he hasn't done anything. Nothing's happened. And you say, well, have you had regular update meetings? Haven't you given them a brief? Have you agreed objectives? Are there any KPIs? No, 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 no. And I think the key thing is it's like any project in a business, isn't it? You can't expect anybody to do it as well as you do it yourself. No. And that's why I think the distinction between strategic and non-strategic is, is fundamental. If it's strategic, only you, you're going to be the best person to sell your brand. Uh, and, and so is your team. As soon as you start putting layers of people in between, uh, whether it's agents or distributors or or, or even us, um, we, we will never be able to sell your brand as well as you can. But what we can do is convert and also leverage the relationships that we've built over, over the last however long, 14 years or so we've been doing fresh. We've been to every single trade show you can think of. We've been to Seal and Anuga and ISM, countless times uh, we've been to gulf food we've got a very good black book and i'm not saying we're we're perfect or we will get it right the alignment of the stars has to be there you've got to have a brand and product that works well um, and is relevant to to the international crowd and often pricing it can be a, a, a real struggle but we have been able to create new and really quite powerful business in territories that brands would probably have taken quite a long time to have got to we save the hassle of having to take stands at trade shows. Um, we shortcut. We've got we've got our three or four favourite distributors that we know are sort of on point at this time. Ten years ago, they would have been a different set of distributors. Distributors go in cycles as well, uh, and you're looking for the the sort of hungry young upstart distributors who are going to give you the time of day. Yeah. So it, it's a moving feast. But I think one of the words you use there, Barney, is really important here, which is shortcut, because like I said at the start of this, the food industry has got loads of idiosyncrasies. It's really tricky. And every time you go about opening a new customer or opening a new market, you've got to learn a whole new way of doing things, you know. And if you can piggyback on somebody who already knows how to do that, I'm thinking about the time where I sat in front of the casino buyer in France 
casino owned the casino and, and Géant uh, hypermarkets in France. And we decided that for Goo, we were going to get on the trucks of a cheese company that James Averdique knew well. And they were going to deliver in our products at the same time that they delivered in their cheese. And they were going to put them on the shelves. And it was all hunky-dory. And I sat in front of this buyer and she said, you need to go and see my supply chain colleague. And I said, why? And she said, well, because it's just really worthwhile doing. Because she said, I don't know the ins and outs of delivery into Casino and Géant. So I reluctantly made the appointment. I kind of didn't see the point. You know, I'd been listed and that was really all I cared about at the time. Sat in front of the supply chain person for Chilled a week before we were supposed to launch. And she said, well, there's no way that's going to work. And I said, why not? And she said, because cheese is delivered between 2 and 4 a.m. And chocolate desserts are delivered between 6 and 8 a.m. And she said, are you going to ask the cheese company to sit in the car park with their van for four hours until they are allowed to deliver the chocolate pallets. And I just sat there with my mouth open thinking, why didn't the cheese company, the cheese partner that we were dealing with, know this? And I think by making that mistake, right, I now know which questions to ask. And I am imagining that you know those questions in tens of markets. So when a company comes to you, they are already kind of piggybacking on your learning curve, right? I know I always quite like the analogy of the Rolls Royce mechanic and the guy with the Rolls Royce sort of rolls into the garage saying my, my car's broken and the mechanic sort of walks around and opens the bonnet and then <clears throat> sort of taps something with his hammer and, and says, here, try that. And the engine starts up immediately. And, and the guy says, that's brilliant. How, how much do you want, like a tenner or something? He said, no, 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 500 quid. But, you, but that only took you three seconds. He said, yes, well, it was three seconds to do, but 20 years of experience. Yeah, exactly. I knew exactly which part of the car to tap. And, and I think a lot of brand marketing people had the same sort of struggle. I think a lot of consultants are in the same sort of basket. That it takes a long time to build up that sort of experience. And I think when, when we talk about kind of what's out there to support new food brands in, in export and what have you, I would say the number one is experience. Where can you get that experience from? Because once you've done it once and you don't have to do it again because you've, you've, you've done that. And yeah. if you've had a few years behind you, you're going to just naturally build up a big kind of catalogue of experience. And, and it's a catalogue of questions to ask, isn't it? So the kinds of questions when I'm sitting opposite the companies I'm helping that I'm able to ask based on the last 20 years are totally different versus the questions they're potentially asking themselves. And I think just picking up the phone, we say this in the podcast every single episode, but picking up the phone and asking whoever is in your network who's done it before, asking them the questions before trying to battle through it yourself is just so valuable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And if you imagine back when you were sort of green to the, the industry and just not knowing how stuff works and how it, how things piece together, if I if I could only explain the complexity of, of this Australian deal that we just landed which I hadn't done before, but it took four trips to Sydney. It took two and a half years to, to land. Wow. And um, the packaging that's gone into it, because it's all bespoke packaging and then milk permits and carton deposit schemes. We've gone into multi-packs, which we haven't done before. Um, there's just so many bits. And then you've got 45 days on C and you've got the listing window in March. And so when do you need to get it to the DC and how are you going to pay for it? Because that's a lot of cash flow you need. It's uber complex. Yeah. Um, that that's just an example. So I think a lot of people see export, particularly as a quick win, sort of easy thing. They probably hear quite nice stories about someone who's just sold a container somewhere, but don't underestimate. Uh, firstly, how great it can be, but also how 
massively distracting and difficult it can be too. One of the things I always say to companies I'm mentoring is who do you have on your team who can take this off your hands? Because if a founder or a very senior person in the business is thinking they can do this and they're, you know, they're hours here and there, they've just got another thing coming, haven't they? Because the amount of emails from on pallets or uh, temperature or, you know, visas or VAT or whatever it might be are just never ending, right? And it's a lot of stuff that a junior person can push, papers that, that, that people can push around, but it's not something that you want to be doing when you're trying to run the rest of the business. No, and I think that's a distracting bit, but I'd also say that it can be high, quite high stakes. You can get a pallet the other side of the world and it be rejected because you haven't got the right paperwork. And so if you just get that little bit wrong, you've got a pallet sat in the wrong place and either ship it back, but it's lost all its shelf life or, or you just have to destroy it. Yeah. So yeah, many, many sort of, I talk about heffalump traps and, and just trying to meander your way through this sort of Winnie the Pooh setting <laughs> where there are so many things you can fall in because the industry we're in, it, there's so many moving parts, so many moving parts. And if you think about the complexity of, of how the product got from the tree to the plate as well, all the different hands and people and whatever that have touched that product um, throughout the whole process, human error is bound to take a form of in some shape yeah. or another. You mentioned uh, all the support that's out there for brands that are growing or scaling at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you think that some of the investment, the money that's flooding into the, the food industry at the moment for startups, do you think that all these investors are aware of the complexity of all of these, you know, this, as you say, the stars need to align and, and the chain of events that needs to happen for transformational growth to really happen? I think that we've found ourselves in the last couple of years in this sort of perfect storm of lots of money in investors' pockets, not really knowing what to do with it. And I, I don't mean to say that sort of lightly, but at the same time as that, uh, we've had television programs like Dragon's Den and Alan Sugar stuff um, going on, sort of encouraging entrepreneurship, which I do think is a, a great thing. You also then have lots of these sort of funds that are coming from either the big guys who, who've set up Unilever Ventures or um, there are other General Mills has got 301 uh, who are trying to you know, learn from you know the next generation of entrepreneurs. You've then also got the supermarkets who are desperate for innovation too. And I know Sainsbury's has got you no know, great sort of platform to, to introduce new brands. And also in the day and age of internet and people wanting to move out of the city, maybe uh, into more of a lifestyle company or existence, all of these things sort of happening kind of, it sort of makes sense that there are an awful lot of new upstart brands. And on the whole, most of them are food and drink brands because that's what everyone can relate to and they get and everyone's got to eat. And there are an awful lot of people who've got to eat and therefore the market must be sort of reasonably sizable. But I would say with a huge amount of caution that we've seen so many, so many brands launch and really not get through that crucial second year. First year is always the beginning bit and you know, trying to prove concept and what have you. But it's the second year or that first listing with the retailer. It's two million turnover. The number two sort of features in an awful lot of make or break scenarios and I, I'd almost go as far as saying it's the number two retailer you're looking for it's not just the first one 
the future brands program at, at Sainsbury's is great, but that doesn't mean you've made it yet. You need to be able to prove your concept and then sell them to another retailer. There's another watch out, I think, which is about the, certainly in Ireland anyway, there's an awful lot of prizes that food brands can win before they've even had any sales. And I think it can give such a boost to entrepreneurs to see that their concept has been recognised. But if they haven't yet actually sold in more than, say, 25 or 50 stores, you know, the battle is not won. (laughs) The war is not won either. And I think that really echoes what you were just saying about the second retailer there. I think so. I think and it's back to just just get started. Start selling stuff. You need sales before you can really sit back and grow elsewhere. Uh, And I would say the same as well about the fundraising kind of bravado that that seems to go on that there's huge celebration when you've raised you know 200 grand or a million quid let's just remember that someone else's money and you're giving away part of your company and you haven't really got going yet Uh, i think the real celebration is when the second order is paid for it means that you know people are actually buying your product and you've got something very tangible and real but but that's I, again. I don't want to come across as a putting it down. I just think you have just got to be very cautious if you're investing. But also, if you're the entrepreneur, you're investing your life and your time and everything else to this as well. Yeah, it's not a quick fix. You'll read about the wonderful stories of Fever Tree and Brew Dog and the excellent sales of brands to multinationals, but they're not that many of them. But if you go to the lunch show or or any of these other IFE type things, uh, you'll see lots and lots and lots of small go-getter brands all trying to find their feet. And many of them haven't actually come up through the ranks of of the drinks industry or the food industry. Uh, So are learning stuff for the first time. Tell me, Barney, you mentioned in our prep conversation that your business Fuel 10K has been completely self-funded. What made you choose that model and how has it worked for you? I think it's probably down to kind of what we set out right from the beginning that that I wanted to not feel like I belonged to anyone and that I owed anyone anything. And also, we're not not in a terrific rush. We've got hopefully a number of years ahead of us too. And it's the enjoyment and thrill of the game and the chase. We're we're not on a three-year let's grow it as quick as we can and then flog it for as much as possible. Of course, that would be lovely if it happened. And I wouldn't say that we're holding back because we haven't raised the money. But I often ask our team, you know, if we had a million or two million injected into our business, what would, what would we do differently? And my very real fear is that we would probably lose the sense that when we spend and invest on things, it comes out of our own pockets. I like to think that most of the people in our team feel very, very sort of owner driven by working in this business. And you've just got to be very careful about how you you spend money and and all the ROI sort of discussions that come with it. Um, I think if you suddenly feel very flush, you might be tempted to answer some of those brand marketing calls that, that come in. Uh, on a very frequent basis, saying that they've got a stadium that needs advertising. There's a tube advert going, you know, cheap or whatever. So you think it keeps you focused and tight? I think so. I'm definitely not ruling it out because I think at some stage, uh, if you want to kick on to the next level, if we wanted to take fuel to America, we would need cash. We So three years ago, we, we went to the States and we did a, a retail survey. We looked at the market in quite a lot of detail, uh, had meetings with publics, with Walmart with Costco and the whole idea was to see whether or not there was an opportunity there we came back with a listing with Walmart in 2200 stores for our breakfast drinks and porridge pots wow um, 
and we didn't really mean for that to happen. And I know that sounds a bit weird, but Walmart owns Asda. Asda at that time was our biggest customer. We were definitely doing some good things with them so they could see through through the, the systems, I guess. And in typical sort of fancy, I, I was kind of all guns are blazing, let, let's do this. And we set up Fuel 10K Inc. in Delaware. We, we've got the trademark. We've, we would have to do manufacturing in the States because of importing milk to the States is very expensive. Our breakfast drinks are milk-based. So we found manufacturers. We engaged with Tetra Pak. Um, we found a, a pot filler for our porridge pots. Um, we did all the designs for packaging. And literally the 11th hour, we had an internal meeting. We've got a core team here of four of us. And we all looked at each other going, do you know what? If this if this doesn't work, all the work that we've poured into the UK could be at major risk, even though we'd set up a subsidiary. Uh, but that doesn't really protect you. We were doing it all under our own steam. Uh, the production run sizes were immense compared to what we're used to. 2,000 Walmart stores, uh, we'd heard horror stories about them being able to delist you within three months of, of listing. And we just looked at it again, we're just, we're just not ready for this. We're just not ready for this. And at that stage, we then started talking to people like General Mills saying, would, would they be interested in a partnership and what have you? We talked to a few private equity houses who wanted their fair share of <laughs> everything and just decided that we had to walk away from that particular opportunity because we could not risk the, the financial blow that a fail would cost us. How did you feel when you, when you made that decision? I'm an out and out sort of forward thinking sales guy and any salesperson who declines that sort of thing is going to feel pretty sore footed but I can see the sense in it of course but I tell you that that experience has made us so so much more not cautious but a bit like you were saying earlier you know you know the questions to ask now sure so when we, so we we've just launched into the German market um, under a license agreement with our manufacturer we get paid a royalty per unit that they sell we don't have to pay for anything. We have no risk whatsoever. Germany was never really on our radar for a proper fuel launch. And they're very hungry for it and have great expertise in that market. That in itself just looks like a really clean, easy decision to make, uh, assuming we can keep control of the brand out there. Um, the Australian deal was based on a on an FOB model with Woolworths. Um, we couldn't cash flow it. We said, if you want to get a price that's competitive, you're going to have to import this yourself, which is kind of why it took so long to try and seal the deal. And in all of that work, we've ended up being able to strike a, a, an arrangement where we're taking very little risk on, on the whole thing. So it's as if risk became more important on your radar. And now that you had the US as an example of what you didn't want to do, you were able to look for things that felt more like what you do want to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And that's about your risk profile. And I'm not saying that we're risk adverse at all because we've done a lot of stupid things. Even last year, we launched a range of peanut butters in pouches. We bought a bit of machinery to go in a peanut butter factory. Um, we were very, very excited about it, but we didn't realize that in aluminium foil pouches, resealable ones, you can't see the oil that separates on the top of the peanut butter. Ah. When you open the pouch, there's a load of oil comes out first. So we've been slightly flummoxed by that. But I'd like to think we had a go. And we're not afraid to have a go and occasionally fail as long as we succeed more than we fail. And I think we're well known for being pretty innovative in the breakfast space, particularly where there is very little innovation. Well, Barney, I think your candor is wonderful. And I think our listeners are going to really appreciate it because 
honestly, there's very few people you can talk to who will speak as honestly and be so generous with the facts that you've given us. You know, the stuff about, you know, the deals you're doing and how you've managed models and even, you know, how you're making Australia work. I think it's really generous to give everybody all that information. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great to chat to you. Yeah, it's been brilliant. And all, all I'd say is just keep a level head. It's it's not rocket science, but it is hard work. And look for as much experience and support in that department. I'd pay for experience over raising money. If someone can say, hit that little nut in that engine rather than all the other nuts around it to start the car again, that's got to be way more valuable than than any, any sort of cash, um, I would have thought. Well, on that note, we'll finish up, but thank you so much again for your time. If you enjoyed hearing how Barney built Fuel 10K, then you're going to love our part two, where we hear how he has just sold the business to Premier Foods for £34 million. Follow Brand Growth Heroes on your podcast app to make sure you don't miss this hot off the press episode coming soon. (laughs) 